0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to another of Shared Ireland podcasts. Today we're in Dublin and we are joined by Senator Neil Richmond. Neil is a Fine Gael spokesperson on EU affairs and chair of the Brexit committee. Welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast Neil. Thanks very much for having me on. No problem, thank you for spending time in your busy schedule to fit us in. Um, I'm going to start things off today on a slightly different tack Neil. I'm going to ask you What's your favourite song, and why do you like that song? (laughs) There's one that you didn't expect.
1: No, it's it's a great one to catch me on the hop. Uh, I'm not particularly musical, but I do like you too, and I do like beautiful day. You too, beautiful day.
0: Yeah. And I'm looking out through the window in your office here, and it is a beautiful day. So there you go. It is. Neil, for anyone that maybe isn't aware of you, what's if anyone is on Twitter like me, I'm sure there isn't many that doesn't know you, but can you give our listeners a little bit about your background, your early years, growing up, and I suppose maybe what helped shape your thinking? Yeah, for sure. So I born in,
1: in South Dublin, grew up in South Dublin, went to local schools. I was the youngest of four children. Um, my parents were from Calvin and Wicklow, respectively. Uh, father worked travelling salesman on the road, covering all the island, and my mother um, stayed at home with the kids for most part uh, of our growing up and then went back to work, did a back to work scheme and worked for Trocra, the aid agency. Oh, Very good. Um, so went to as I said, I was the youngest of four. Community and sport was a big part of our life growing up. Our family wasn't political in terms of a party political sense, but uh, my dad would have been chairman of the resident Association on the PTA, very involved in local sports clubs, local volunteer organizations, as was my mother. All my siblings played sport, and all my siblings were very involved and they're now raising their own families. We live in the same area that I grew up. I suppose being the youngest of four, you, you get a little bit spoilt. Um, but we very much would have been in a house where the paper was read every morning. It was delivered to the house. Mm-hmm. And the topics of the day were discussed. Yeah, The news was discussed, um, particularly news relating to Northern Ireland, to be honest, because the vast majority of my cousins lived in the north. Um, as I mentioned, all my grandparents hailed from Cavan originally. We would have spent summers on the border. We'd have very much driven up from Calvon to Enniskillen because that's where the swimming pool was and all that factored in. And so we were very aware of what was going on in the world, but also what was going on in Ireland. Yeah. I suppose later on, um, secondary school, my, my big passion and still is, was history. It was my favourite subject in school. I went on to study history in university, had a very good history teacher in secondary school who i still stay in touch with 20 odd years later my sister studied history my brother studied history we were very lucky i no make no bones about it Three three of all four of us got to go to third level at various stages um, we didn't want for anything with great parents couldn't have asked for more um, but history was the the big thing find me and when you're studying history you take an interest in current affairs probably a bit more mm-hmm. general election in 2002 was my first time voting in an election and i decided to vote for Finnegale. i liked the local td olivia mitchell um, went out of my way to vote for
0: her. I, as I said, I wasn't involved or active. And what would you have thought, um, without, mm. I suppose, giving away who your parents voted for, but do you think that's who your family would have voted for traditionally? Would that have influenced <laughs> you, I suppose? No,
1: because we never would have... Like, we wouldn't have been a Fine Gael house as such, okay. or a Fianna Fáil house. Um, my mother would have generally always voted for Fine Gael. She loved Gareth Fitzgerald. I think This is something I found out after I got quite involved. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize she had been a member of Finnegal in the 80s when oh, I was okay. growing up yeah. um, until long after I had already signed up at this stage. And my dad was quite a typical floating voter. Mm-hmm. I know on various stages he voted for Finnegal. He also voted for the local Fianna Fáil TD Seamus Brennan at one stage. Mm-hmm. He voted for a local Labour councillor. The individual was nearly as much import- as important to him. My brother would be a strong Finnegaler. Okay. Always was. He'd be to the right of me, um, okay. to be honest, on a number of issues. Um,
0: and what was it that attracted you to cast your first vote for Fine Gael? It, sounds, it, it wasn't very depth. I wasn't one of the... I who was Taoiseach at the time? It was
1: Bertie Hearn. Oh, Bertie, okay. So that certainly would have played a factor. I wasn't a massive fan of Bertie Hearn. There was a few concerns about... I naturally just felt more comfortable with and this this isn't this isn't very deep, and perhaps it's not great for anyone who's a student of politics I liked the Fine Gael people I liked the way they were talking I liked what the local TDs had been doing I was blessed at a very good constituency with good TDs from all parties and good candidates mm-hmm. um, but for whatever reason I decided on Fine Gael um, and they had a terrible election so mm-hmm. as an 18 year old or 19 year old as I was I didn't know what the policies were I'm not going to pretend at 19 that I declared there and then I was you know, I don't I, anyone who turns to me at 18 and says, well, I'm a committed socialist. I'm like, it takes a while to work out exactly what you are. Absolutely. And even today, I wouldn't put a, a rigid ideology because anyone who knows me or seen, I can I have quite conflicting opinions on certain issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, we'll, we'll get on to We'll get on them. to them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but Finnegay was the party that I just felt more, most comfortable with. But I particularly a lot of it was down to the candidate Olivia Mitchell. She was well known oh, in the okay. area she was high-profile, she was classy, very respectful and respected mm-hmm. and Alan Shatter, who I gave my number two, was a great mind. Controversial, you know, sometimes a bit marmite to certain people, but I recognised that. And They were recognisable people and to be honest, as I said, the, I think back to that election, I think back to the people who were running, there were some really good candidates from all parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I voted for Fine Gael, made that decision to vote for Olivia Mitchell and they had a terrible election they lost 20-odd seats. Michael Noonan was leader, he left and they went into a period of a bit of a tailspin and people were saying this is the end of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are turned once again. And so I went backpacking that summer with my friends around Europe and had a few conversations about politics, not many now, and I said, ah, look, I'm one of the guys who voted for Fianna Fáil because of Bertie Hearn and Bertie Hearn was bringing a national stadium. And we went out, N- nothing bad, we were having conversations, and after about five weeks of that, one of the guys turned around and said, I'm sick of listening to you, would you ever do something about it? Came back, fresh as week. I said, right, I'm gonna join a political party, gonna get involved. No, no big ambition to be a politician, or just yeah. wanted to see what it was, and kind of thought, well, maybe I'll join the Labour Party. It would always been quite quite like the Labour Party, It'd kind of like elements of the British Labour Party, just when you saw the debates against the Tories, and the Blair Tide, and D-Ream, and all this. And I was going down and I was looking at the parties and it was the people, the ordinary members, the other second, third year college students who were manning the Fine Gael stand, I happened to recognise one of them, got chatting to her. Um, How did I
0: know it was going to be a female?
1: Well, it was a female who, <laughs> who subsequently took my seat in the council and I'm godfather to her daughter. Oh, so, very good. Um, that's, it. it was more she was in school with me and... Just felt quite comfortable with the people there, so I went to one or two meetings of Finnegall. I went to a meeting with the Labour Party as well, but the Labour Party is extremely left-wing on university campuses, and mm-hmm. they were talking about their opposition to the to the was it the the second Nice referendum. And okay. Even at that stage, I knew in my heart I I liked the EU and I thought Europe was good, even though I didn't have a formed opinion. And bear in mind, I'd just been back from a summer interrailing and really seeing, and I was like, well, I can't be a part of a party that's calling for to leave the EU. Yeah. Um, not that I had a strong opinion or knowledge as I do now and I just liked the Fine Gael meetings they were interesting it was quite social there was always a chance to have a cup of tea or a beer and um, getting involved in a political party is extremely addictive mm-hmm. especially at youth level and first year I didn't go to many meetings but I started going to a few meetings and then went away and came back the next year and decided to go to a few more meetings again. And then in my final year in university there was an election campaign, a local and European election campaign. There was a couple of younger candidates running for the for Dublin City Council near campus and Gay Mitchell was running for the European elections and because so many people were running and there was sort of a shortage of people on the ground, I ended up getting quite involved in two or three campaigns, knocking on doors, putting leaflets in, mm-hmm. putting up posters, they were great crack European mm-hmm. elections in particular mm-hmm. are great crack because it's so you're going around wearing t-shirts and carrying cardboard cutouts and you're talking about interesting issues with interesting people. And there's a camaraderie, great camaraderie. Exactly. You'd yeah. finish up and you'd have a you'd have a drink or a chat. I went on the leaders tour for a couple of days as a volunteer, okay. and you get a real bug about it. Yeah. And you find out that there's a couple of dozen other people similar age who want to talk about similar topics. Yeah. And canvassing at all levels, and this is going to sound really um twee a bit when you meet people on the doorstep and you can answer or the candidate as it was at the time could answer their query provide a bit of guidance a little bit of relief possibly to some of their concerns mm-hmm. it is very
0: rewarding yeah, absolutely and it's good when you as you say be on the doorstep and you can witness that firsthand. Mm-hmm. time
1: yeah so I remember the first doorstep that I knocked on with the candidate I dropped all my leaflets all over the, the doorstep and it wasn't nerves or something it was just clumsiness Yeah. and the person opening the door found this hilarious and wasn't early inviting us in for a cup of tea she's felt so bad for this young lad with peroxide blonde hair <laughs> right. dropping his leaflets all over and uh, look and that's how it is and then there was various opportunities to get even more involved in the organization I was studying history I decided then to move to politics as a master's and had the opportunity I convinced myself then that politics is the career for me mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd ever run for office I thought you know, being a researcher or a yeah. secretary or an aide. Mm-hmm. And I went and did an internship in Brussels. It was meant to last three months. I spent two years there working for Gay Mitchell, the very man who I canvassed for the previous year. And that's how I say, got the very rest involved. Of yeah.
0: Tell me this was just going back to your, I suppose, early years, was religion a factor in your household? And the reason why I ask us, just for the benefit mm-hmm. of our listeners, you are a proud member of the Church of Ireland. And I suppose that's why I asked was religion did it help shape your life or was it an important issue in your household?
1: Well, I'm a proud member. I don't know if they're proud of me at times, <laughs> but um I'm sure they are. Yeah, look, my parents were from a different generation. They were quite religious. Mm-hmm. They went to church every Sunday. Yeah. And they were involved in the parish vestry, they were involved in the church face. Um yeah, no, they were not the more I think about it, they're passed away now, the two of them, unfortunately. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, for a number of years now. But they would have grown up that church was just part of your life. Now, they weren't necessarily va- very dogmatic people or really principled, but uh, they were, sorry, they were really principled. And it was certainly something, you did notice it unintentionally. I went to a different national, sco- national school to the kids on the road. I went to the Church of Ireland National School. Okay. And I didn't play much GA growing up, but I played rugby. Yes. I played hockey. I played yeah, cricket. Yes. Small things, the sports that would be associated, associated with, and yes. um, associated with the schools.
0: Exactly.
1: I remember, and they'd go like, "We, you know, I didn't make a first holy communion,
0: mm. you know,
1: and I didn't know our rector, our clergyman, as the father. He was just Horace, and his kids were my age, yes. and they went to school with us, and we played football with them, yes. and we had Sunday school, and it was just, it was a bit different. And used to, it would be something that." Was a bit
0: past remarkable. Make light of it. So, so to say that there wasn't a sense of a, a small divide would be wrong. There was something, but it wasn't awkward or not. No, it
1: wasn't awkward. Yeah. We, I, it was more because I went to a different school than the kids in the road. You know that is a divide in itself. Yeah. Um But it wasn't a them and us mentality. Far from it. Mm-hmm. And as it progressed. To when you get a little bit older and you get a bit more aware. Mm-hmm. Like, no one knows religious differences when you're in national school, really. No. But secondary school, I went again, I went to a Methodist secondary school, which was in the area, and you started to be a, a bit more aware of certain things. So and this was Dublin in the mid nineties. It's even in the twenty years since Dublin has changed greatly. Mm-hmm. Um you wouldn't necessarily walk down the road in your cricket whites. Yeah. Y- you might get a little bit of slagging or a few questions, nothing mm-hmm. bad, like I'm I'm quite aware I'm from quite a nice part of Dublin as well, where there wasn't much anti-social behaviour or Mm -hmm. anything like that. But you started to notice a bit of graffiti, um, occasionally a a sectarian comment, if you're in your school uniform and you're playing a match. And one thing I remember distinctly is we had an armistice service in November and they would have sold poppies and there was a war memorial. I actually went back and spoke at the centenary of that service last year. And I do remember I was at 16, 17, I was going from school to evening study somewhere else or a grind or something. And my mum said, Now make sure you take off your poppy. Because the kids that were it was just a general, you didn't she goes like we don't really wear our poppies outside of church or outside of school. Okay. And that was the first time I kind of noticed that probably wasn't a great idea to walk down a Dublin street in 1999 wearing a poppy. Yeah. Okay. Possibly changed a bit since.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and obviously, because it was a a Protestant school with a, a Protestant history teacher, my approach to Irish history was probably a little bit... I definitely I knew it was different because I then went on to study history in UCD. I suppose my sister went to Trinity. Mm-hmm. And obviously, historically, and it probably isn't relevant in the 90s and noughties, but there was... It, our The history curriculum can be quite nationalist and, you know, honouring the heroes in 1916 and all yeah. that. And our history teacher always... Gives a bit of nuance. Mm -hmm. You go, like, you do have to remember that it wasn't a popular rebellion at the time. And there were many people who considered themselves unionists in the South. Edward Carson had a broad Dublin accent. Mm -hmm. And one thing he always said the political divide on our island is not a strict religious divide. Mm -hmm. You talk about Wolf Tone, you talk about Ernest Blythe. Yes. And he said it always gave me a sort of a questioning approach. You know, there wasn't just, like, like, you don't fit into one easy column. And um, that's how I noticed it. And then it's still the people you go to school with can often frame what you do after school, where you keep playing sport. And, you know, my wife happened to, she isn't Church of Ireland, um, but she happened to go to a a Protestant school as well.
0: And just coincidence. And we meet through sports and stuff. Just in case uh, anybody's wondering, that's not a fire alarm. That's (laughs) the bell for people to it's votes in the door. votes in the door. Yeah, so hopefully
1: they you're, press you're, the right you're buttons. You're not needed, are you? <laughs> no, our, our our bell is a slightly different ring.
0: Okay. How long will this go on for, by the way? we a go on minutes? for four minutes, yeah. <laughs> All right, okay, four minutes. We'll put up with that. Just sticking with um, the religion thing, mm. if you don't mind for a wee second, I find this personally fascinating. Just, um, Do you think Protestants living in Southern Ireland have comfortably found their, I suppose, place in a liberal... Increasing secular and European focused society? Yeah, like I never
1: felt myself any less Irish Mm -hmm. than anyone. Yeah. And I'd usually get, a term I hate is West Brit. Uh huh. And that gets thrown out a lot. And I'm there like, I don't have good Irish, but I try my best. I went to the Gael talks in Donegal. Okay. I don't see myself as any less Irish. I know all the words for Ron Navine. I always sing it. I go to Croke Park. I did play Gaelic football. I was terrible. I have as much a commitment to see Dublin winning a sixth All-Ireland as I have anything else Yes um, But when I spoke to my parents and more of my and I said they passed away but more of my my parents circle of friends who were a little bit older the Ireland I grew up in was completely alien to the Ireland post-independence
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there was a very distinct southern Protestant population and what brought it home to me is we had a family reunion 15-20 years ago and my mother was the only one of her family, sibling or first cousin, that lived south of the border. Mm-hmm. All the others had emigrated. They'd either oh, moved yeah. to the north, Ban Hinch, Banbridge, they'd moved to England, they'd moved to Scotland, some further field. And a lot of it was economic reasons. You know, her brother went to a boarding school in Armagh, where she went to one, in, she went to the local school in Calvin, mm-hmm. but they sent him to Armagh and he went and lived and worked in London, has been there 50 years, married a, a German lady. Didn't, he still has an Irish passport and travels and considers himself Irish first of course but if you look at the Ireland particularly around 1937 and De Valera's constitution and the very famous speech WB Yeats made when he was a senator when divorce came in or when divorce was banned in the south I can imagine it was a very difficult place to grow up Mm -hmm. Um, the GA had the ban Mm -hmm. you know everything was done through Irish my mother worked in the Ulster Bank in 1966 when they were giving a commemorative of coins about Easter 1916. And if we look at the centenary commemorations of 1916 compared to the 50th, I think they were quite different. Mm-hmm. And I think we've moved on as an island to remember everything that went with it. I remember my dad going to watch Northern Ireland, I don't remember him telling me, watching Northern Ireland play in the World Cups in 82 and 86. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have necessarily cheered for Northern Ireland in a Dublin pub at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. But well, I went to the Euros in 2016 Obviously supporting the Republic of Ireland Soccer team uh-huh. But I cheered for Northern Ireland In all their games too And yeah. it was great I don't know if it would happen now Three and a half years later I hope it would To see the fans come together Yeah And I still remember that It was at Windsor Park in 93 When Ireland qualified Republic of Ireland qualified for um, USA 94 uh-huh. You know the febrile atmosphere The sectarian songs uh-huh. Billy Bingham g up the crowd uh, the team bus getting stoned and it's it was a different time but I think it's changed and change comes rapidly I think we've certainly in the last 20 years seen massive change south of the border um, it maybe doesn't go notice because it was never a big issue and um, the southern Protestant community very much integrated for want of a reason and engaged you know my grandparents even though all of them were born south of the border would have considered themselves British as well Yeah, and my parents wouldn't have ever considered themselves British, mm-hmm. but they would have had a lot, you know, they would have had a lot less antipathy towards the UK for sure. And My mother could never get her mind around where I'd always cheer against whoever was playing England. I'd always cheer for the opposition. Yeah, And that's a mindset we're all guilty of <laughs> at times. Yeah, My mother said, but you're an Arsenal fan and your cousins are all English yeah. and they are supporting England. Like, you know, you know the English team, mm-hmm. you're cheering whoever it may be one week when that's they're playing. Right. That's right. And I was like, ah." And but I always I, thought it was more of a playful thing. I, I think
0: I think that that's a good word. It, it is mostly playful. That, like, yeah. You know, as you say, if you support Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, whoever, a lot of them same players are going to be playing for England. And mm-hmm. isn't it ironic. One week you want them to win because they're your club team. Yeah. And the next week you're hoping they get beat. And I definitely think religion in the south,
1: where I'm, where I've engaged, and I get banter about it in here from other Aractus members, and there is a little that sense of identity isn't as controversial. Mm-hmm. And I remember it brought home to us, we were on a rugby tour in Glasgow, playing Glasgow University and being a rugby team from Dublin, students in our 20s, the vast majority of whom would have actually been from Protestant backgrounds sing rugby songs. So we sang The Fields of Athen Rye and next thing Students Union comes in, you can't sing The Fields of Athen Rye in Glasgow because it's associated with Glasgow Celtic, mm-hmm. not Glasgow Rangers. And we were like, it's just a song. Mm-hmm. And... We it would never be an issue, and yeah. I remember a friend of the family. His party piece was to sing the sash. Mm-hmm. and This guy had a broad Dublin accent and probably wouldn't do it in Belfast or in Derry or in Tyrone or anywhere like that. But thought it was a bit of crack yeah. at a house party with a broad Dublin accent. With a broad <laughs> Dublin accent, surrounded by people from all re- religious backgrounds yeah. and none, and you know we'd have banter about religion. It's something you know. Most of my friends probably aren't that religious now. <clears throat> Again, a generational thing. Like, I wouldn't be going to church every Sunday, but I am aware that it's part of my identity and probably brings me to approach certain matters mm-hmm. slightly different.
0: I, I suppose the reason why I asked you that question mm. about have you found that Protestants have integrated mm. um, well in society is because Sheryl um, Ireland has interviewed Geoffrey Donaldson, mm. Doug Beattie, Mike Nesbitt, Alex Kane different people, um, Senator Ian Marshall even. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, you know, the big debate about, which we'll touch on later mm. on in this conversation, is about, you know, a future border poll and mm. how that would look like. Um, we won't get into that now, but, you know, I suppose a shared Ireland or a new Ireland has to be an Ireland for everyone. Mm. Um, you know, um, and, and Republicans, nationalists, for example, Camp not shoehorn 800,000 or a million. Which uh, is what the moves. Irish Free State did. Yeah. And that's why there was such a flight, mm-hmm. as
1: I talk about my, my mother's generation. Yeah, moving up north they or going to England or wherever. Yeah. And why a lot of the population concentrated. Like you think of the War of Independence and the Civil War, the burning down of the big houses, or just mm-hmm. burning people out of their properties. And then beyond that, the legislative decision, like the Irish Constitution was sh- and the early laws were shaped by the Archbishop of Dublin. Yeah the time he didn't say that mm-hmm. and like we talk about was it the, was it in fines or i'm gonna get it wrong feathered and see where you had the situation of a, a mixed marriage and the children being forced to bring up catholic, yeah, brought up catholic. Yeah. like my parents generation there wasn't that many mixed marriages it was mm-hmm. still noted whereas i think all my friends nominally are a mixed
0: marriage to some extent one or two exceptions you just mentioned there that that, that the Southern Society was shaped in, mm. by a Catholic mm. church. I, I'll never forget something Mike Nesbitt said. He said, um, when the Pope visited Ireland last year, he said, um, Leo Varadgar welcomed him. Yeah, um, good to see you. But, you know, don't touch nothing when you're here and yeah. safe trip back home again. And I went to see the Pope in <laughs> Phoenix Park.
1: Yeah. Lots of people couldn't get their head like, why are you going to see the Pope and to listen to a mass? And I was interested and but probably in 1978 my parents wouldn't have thought Mm -hmm. they would have never even considered going out to see John Paul II as it was Um, and even that was more controversial for friends of mine who were from a Catholic background Mm -hmm. who had maybe fallen out with the Catholic Church understandably and it was was definitely as a politician as an individual it was fine but as a politician it was a bit of a balancing act to Mm -hmm. say well I want to hear what this man has to say turns out most of it was in Italian and they didn't understand it but I also wanted to see what brought tens of thousands of people as it was, as opposed to the million people, mm-hmm. to come out and see this. And regardless of feeling and religion,
0: the Pope is still a very, whoever it is, a very, very important figure in the mm-hmm. world. So I suppose just to mm. close off on this particular subject, in 2019, with the Southern Society being a more liberal inclusive one, from your experience, Southern Protestants feel Welcome and home, at home here, integrated, that nobody should have nothing to fear. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: I'm Irish. Yeah. This is my country. Exactly. My parents are from here, my grandparents are from, from here. We go back 900 years yeah. longer. Yeah. yeah. Pre plantations on one side, post the other. Yeah. And I don't feel any different to anyone. And I sit here as a member of the Oroctus as a complete equal.
0: And, 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 like, Catholic Church not having the same control probably has helped greatly in, I suppose, in your own head.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's more just yeah the the lack the fact that religion used to decide life. Yeah, now it is part of your life. And yeah. I'm not an anti-religious person, no. far from it. Um, but it definitely is paying less of a dogmatic life. But there's still a lot of work to do. I would have concern that the vast majority of our schools are still run under Roman mm-hmm. Catholic patronage. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be religion in school, but <clears throat> if we're ever to move the island on, never mind, we'll talk about unification or possible unification in a bit. But in terms of, I believe in a very inclusive Ireland in terms of welcoming people. Mm-hmm. And even interesting, like my parents never really experienced in, in immigration. Yeah. I think immigration is great. I think making Ireland such a much better place. But if you're moving over from Poland or you're moving over from Australia, and I still have people coming in they go like, what do you mean we should be a member of parish to get a place in the school? Mm-hmm. You know, it is mm-hmm. quite different. Mm, yeah, um, Maybe we still need to look at the divestment process within schools. Is it happening quick enough? Mm-hmm. Um, is the influence there? Do people... I don't necessarily believe we need a secular society. Like, I have no problem with the Angelus. I actually think we should keep it. I think it's quite cool. Okay. Um, But I think making Ireland more welcoming and more open and changing it means we have to make space for people of all beliefs and none. 100%. Whereas at the moment, that's changing rapidly and our laws are changing to reflect that. And I've been involved in those campaigns. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's certain campaigns, I think, can go too far. And I have no problem in saying, like, we don't need to go too far. But we don't need to. We can't erase religion from society. Religion does so much good. Let's I'm, not forget.
0: I'm just looking down at my next question. We're mm. never, we're never going to get off this yeah. religion subject. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Recently, the baptism requirement for entry to Catholic schools in the South was removed, with um, protection still afforded to minority mm-hmm. schools. Do you think this was a big step in making the South a more inclusive society? I suppose, which we've already touched on, and at the same time, ensure minority groups are cherished as they should be.
1: Yeah, and a, see, the, there is an element who wants us to fully secularise our schools straight away. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, trying to do, move from 83% or whatever it is to nothing. Yeah. Isn't impossible to do straight away. And I think we have to remember, and we talk about the, the very dark incidents um, in the Roman Catholic Church, but equally there were some in the Church of Ireland in our history, and Tune babies and all these mm-hmm. horrible horrible things yeah. But there also has been very good incidents and there's been very good religious people you know thinking of brother kevin and the Capuchins and what they're doing in in dublin we think of the hospitals and schools that wouldn't be built if it wasn't for the church's money and their emphasis and for every horrible christian brother there was probably a lovely one. Mm-hmm. And for every nun abusing a Magdalene Laundry, there was a nun tending to a family <coughs> who really needed them. Yeah, I think we have to, you can't be completely anti straight away. So I think the baptism barrier is a good start. I think it is, if you remove the protections from minorities, you have to remember you're going from a situation where 83% are under one patronage mm-hmm. and a very small percent. So if you remove it from all straight away, it's very hard to keep any identity. Mm-hmm. Um, And we talk about choice as someone who's growing up Church of Ireland, who grew up Church of Ireland and is raising my child Church of Ireland. I'm lucky I live in Dublin. I have a plethora of schools to Mm -hmm. choose from. Yeah. But outside Dublin, it's the only show in town. You may have a small Church of Ireland school, but the secular schools, be they educate together or otherwise, aren't spreading
0: that quick enough. Just, Just when you mention outside of Dublin, correct me if I'm wrong, is there a village... Outside Monaghan called Drum. Drum, 99%. It, 99% Protestant occupation, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I've been to... My mother's not fro, far... Is brought up in Coot Hill County Cavan, which is just over the county oh, border yeah. from Drum. Yeah. I've been to Drum. And I, funny, I've been
0: to Drum uh, too. And, s- and
1: you could drive through it and miss it nearly. I think it's the only village in the Republic that has a, a free Presbyterian church. Oh, and a okay. Presbyterian church. Yes, oh. Wow. And the Church of Ireland church. Probably a Methodist or Baptist hall. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I think Heather Humphreys, the minister, is from not—that's right. She is roots close enough there as well. And Lorraine Hall is a, a councillor, is from a similar part of the world, just elected, and, but in Dublin. Yeah, that's that's Drum, but you talk about Leitrim, yeah, and like there's a provision under Education Act that if you're from a county that doesn't have a secondary school of your religious persuasion, you can get a grant towards boarding. So if you're from County Leitrim, there's no, there's a small Protestant population there because it's near the border. There isn't a Protestant secondary school in Leitrim, so you can go to board in the grammar school in Sligo and oh, get okay. reduced fees or whatever it is. The same way, if you're from an island, the state will pay for your boarding fees because an island's not going to have a secondary school. Yes, oh, ah, yes. Okay. Or, Ackle or whatever yeah, yes, is. certainly. is. They're the sort of small things. And obviously, there's a block grant that goes to Protestant schools to allow them. Um, I suppose not all of them need to be fee paying. Most are. Um, there's only 23 in the state and a lot of them have a boarding element for that reason mm-hmm. um, but if you're in certain villages and towns where you don't have much choice and the only school to go to is the Roman Catholic Church school and things are changing in schools and I, again I can't stress like, I've no problem with an element of religion in schools or some schools being religious I actually think there's some really good background there but it is something we need to look at as a state not just for looking at north-south and everything else but looking at you know broadening out and being a far more inclusive, tolerant state where we have 300,000 people, British people, living um, south of the border at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a huge number. Mm -hmm. And 100,000 of them don't have any access to an Irish passport. And they're coming from, they might be having kids or raising kids, having grown up in Coventry or wherever, and going, well, you know, the schools here are quite different. And they are. And I think we have to reflect that they're very different america has banned prayer in school i don't necessarily believe in that but like that's the differences we have yeah You look at the lycée in france all these things um so i think there's a lot to do there and i think we need to have a really wide conversation because the education system is the bedrock of everything
0: and
1: mm-hmm. um, it is changing for some people it's not changing quick enough for other people it's changing too quickly yeah. and there's lots of people who aren't religious don't practice but yet They still want their child to make their first communion. I
0: think you said something very important. As long as we're having conversations. Yeah. I think that's the key factor for me personally. In in any regard, no matter what the subject is. Once you stop talking to someone you disagree with, what's the point? Absolutely. Okay, Neil. I guess we've danced around this subject long (laughs) enough. We better talk about the subject that has consumed society for the past three years. Mm. And of course that is Brexit. So I, I, I take it Brexit has consumed your life because um, as you are chair of the Brexit committee and um, I, I suppose that's all you do 24-7. I suppose my first question to you would be, why is the backstop so important for the island of Ireland? I suppose it's it's not the backstop anymore. No, it's not. Um, they, thankfully,
1: they haven't come up for a different name for what was the revised backstop. Yeah. Why it's so important is quite simply... Brexit bringing about a hard border on this island would be a catastrophe. It would bring us back to a very dark time and look I've gone through my family history crossing the border was something I was used to doing at a time where it wasn't much crack to do it. My dad was a travelling sales rep who covered the entire island who at times had to go and meet his rep uh, north of the border and get into his car because he couldn't drive a southern reg car around certain parts. Mm -hmm. And the very thought of infrastructure coming back chills me genuinely. And thankfully European colleagues have recognised that. But one of the biggest issues was, prior to the referendum in Britain, particularly in England, this wasn't considered. It wasn't thought of. It wasn't an issue. Irish government, I believe, tried to raise it many times. Didn't want to know. Wouldn't be an issue. We'd get round it. And one of my biggest issues with Brexit, obviously I'm really pro-European, so I think Brexit's terrible and there's no such thing as a good Brexit. But we have a lot of referenda in this jurisdiction. The UK doesn't have many. You know they had the referendum to leave the EEC in nineteen seventy five. Mm-hmm. They had the referendum on I A V and they'd Brexit. Scotland had independence referendum. Northern Ireland obviously voted on the Good Friday Agreement. That's it. Whereas technically last May we had four referenda. Yeah. You know three you know regional uh, plebiscites and one national one in relation mm-hmm. to divorce. We do it a lot. We've done some very wrong. We've rushed them. I think the citizens assembly model. A lot of people think it's a bit of a cop-out, but I think it works. I think it takes a lot of the a lot of the oxygen out of the, the tougher aspects. Mm-hmm. And when you slow things down and do it a bit more methodically, like we saw with the most contentious issue in terms of the Eighth Amendment, mm-hmm. we had Citizens' uh, Assembly, and Enda Kenny was pilloried for, se- for putting it to the Citizens' Assembly by a certain sector. But I don't know if that referendum would have passed if he hadn't, or if we would have had the tone of debate, which I thought was quite mature, and obviously I was involved in that campaign and I had a strong opinion, but I didn't have any fallings out with anyone over it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the scenes that maybe dominated previous attempts to address this question in the 90s and 80s. But with any referendum, you need to have two clear outcomes. Mm-hmm. What does yes mean? What does no mean?
0: Yeah.
1: We knew what Remain meant. The status quo didn't change anything on the island of Ireland. Mm-hmm. We did not know, and we still
0: do not know what leave means. Recently, Arlene Foster said, that any deal on Brexit must have unionist consent. Do you think this is a correct assessment given that Brexit itself does not have the consent of the nationalist community and indeed many within the unionist community?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a false argument and I find it a bit ironic to to hear members of the DUP lauding the Good Friday Agreement or using the Good Friday Agreement as a reason to oppose something. I question if... Sinn Féin, who, were, who I would say are euro and oppose every other European referendum, if they'd come out for
0: a leave, and I don't think they would have, would the DUP? You know, I wonder. That seems to be the way that a lot of parties make their policy, especially in Northern Baltic. Yeah, and, and
1: that's not a criticism in either party. No, it's no, just no, no. a reflection from afar. Uh-huh. And I think what Northern, what common membership of the EU allowed Ireland and the UK come to very quickly was a situation on the island of Ireland where it was very easy to implement a lot of the changes. You know, you talk about the European Union from ninety three and the customs. It was very easy to remove the border very quickly. Mm -hmm. It was very easy to push on with a lot of the all-island things. Now, my criticism of myself, my own party, and wider southern politics is it was very easy for us to disconnect with the north and northern politics very quickly. I'm not talking about contesting elections, No, but growing up, Something to do with Northern Ireland was the headline every day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Generally not a very good thing. No. But post-Good Friday Agreement, post OMA in particular, we distance ourselves. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's grand. Mm-hmm. It's working out. Yeah. Um, and maybe there was a lesson there that it hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. That things... And I think maybe certain Northern parties had sort of got a little bit laxadaisical about it as well. Complacent. Complacent. It's going fine. And then you had the perfect storm of... The collapse of Stormont and Brexit. Never mind the reasons for the collapse of Stormont. Stormont wasn't there and hasn't been there for the last three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And that has had a major impact on the Brexit discussions. You have Electoral alumni in Westminster for the first time since the 70s. We don't have a a nationalist MP. and It just means that the debate has been very funneled through one particular viewpoint in the north. Mm -hmm. And it meant that people can say things... And I think when I look at Brexit, Brexit nominally doesn't have the consent of all communities in Northern Ireland, quite clearly. And we look at the results of the European elections 60% of people voting in the North for backstop supporting candidates, two of the MEPs elected to the European Parliament being backstop supporting candidates. Might necessarily get that reflected in a, an Assembly election where it becomes probably a little no, bit.
0: No, but uh, I suppose that the European election was fought very clearly on. on European lines. Yeah.
1: Whereas do our Assembly elections fought maybe on identity lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was something real and I think what we have with the backstop and we have with, I don't think the backstop or whatever you want to call the Northern Irish Protocol as it is, I don't think it has any impact on the Good Friday Agreement
0: it's there to protect it. But but I suppose speaking as somebody that lives Mm, in the north of Ireland um, you know I want my rights as an Irish citizen, which the Good Friday Agreement Mm. put into law that you can identify, be identified as British Irish or whatever. You know, if I choose to identify as Irish, you know, my rights have to be the same as yours, living in Dublin, if I'm living in Fermanagh or wherever. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of the fears that I suppose that, you know, will I still have the same rights yeah. as you, as an Irish citizen? And it's it's always the same with any citizens. Northern Ireland
1: normally will no longer be part of the EU mm-hmm. so geographically it's not part of the EU do you get the same rights as a citizen who's resident in the EU as not resident in the EU yeah and unlike no other member state has this issue mm-hmm. no other member state can deal with it and what the Irish government can do to enforce it is very difficult
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And look, but, but I suppose you, while, while I appreciate you say it's difficult um, back a year and a half ago mm there was a thousand people signed a letter addressed to the Irish government and Leo came out quite clearly publicly and said never again will an Irish government leave the people of the north behind and that's quoting them accurately yeah
1: and that's quoting them verbatim and I'd like to think what we've done so far is to try and protect that absolutely and 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 I I personally would would, would
0: congratulate the Irish government on everything but
1: now we come to the the practical implication of the rhetoric. So obviously fighting for the backstop and keeping the border open is one part. Yeah. Now we've got to put our money where the mouth is. Yeah. So what's the next one? Practical one. We are going to underwrite that every everyone in Northern Ireland, where they identify as British, Irish or both, will have access to the European health insurance card.
0: Absolutely. That's a big cost. I, it, it is.
1: Um, do we have to make sure then that Northern Irish people studying in Northern Ireland have access to Erasmus. The Erasmus, yeah that Northern Irish um, third-level institutions continue to have access to um, Horizon, Horizon 2020 funding. Absolutely. Big R&D that's very important in key areas. And then we come to the complicated matters in terms of identity and rights. Yeah. And where it comes down to, and look, we can easily say it, the most obvious example, and it's not actually tied to Brexit, but it's the first time something in the Good Friday Agreement has really been tested, is the situation of Emma Souza and Jake D'Souza. Yes. And what can the Irish government do to force the hands of British um, Home Office policy and immigration mm-hmm. policy. And look, I've met Emma, I've, I've never met Jake, but I've met Emma a number of times and spoken on flat platforms with her. It's now we have to find a measure through Strand 2 of how we can implement that. Mm-hmm. Brexit confuses that. This issue would have come up regardless of Brexit. Yeah. Brexit confuses it and makes it much more difficult. In one way, Brexit could be the thing that propels the Good Friday Agreement to another level. Uh-huh. Particularly when you look at the role of the North-South Ministerial Council, the inter- and this is purely from a political sense, from the Intergovernmental Conference. So the UK are leaving the EU. Terrible decision. We are the only member state remaining who can have a special relationship with the UK above and beyond any of the others. Mm-hmm. That's through the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, correct. Our ministers can meet in a formalised manner, if they want, mm-hmm. the week before every European Council meeting. Mm-hmm. Our ministers and the ministers in the Northern Executive, when it gets back up running, can do the same as well. Mm-hmm. So you have the opportunity, where it's not going to be as good as what we have now. I'm not going to pretend like it's not, but we could be the bridge into the EU for Britain and British companies and British people, and Northern Ireland more importantly. And this is probably more economically than in terms of rights and identity, mm-hmm. Northern Ireland can have the best of both worlds, mm-hmm. which I think it could do with economically and something. Absolutely, I struggle when. People from a unionist background, and not necessarily be a unionist background, who are also business people, or farmers in particular, mm-hmm. have criticisms of what's on the offer, be it the backstop, be it the current withdrawal agreement, um, or the fact that they didn't take a decision on Brexit. Mm-hmm. And you can't eat a flag is very key. Mm-hmm. And I think if I was a business person in Northern Ireland, if I was Simon Hamilton running Belfast Chamber of Commerce, and I know he's come out and said this, but going like this deal could give us the shot in the arm that makes things very different, mm-hmm. and it could lead to a. I would argue there's a need for increased equality of distribution in Northern Ireland geographically. Mm-hmm. You know, parts of Belfast are doing extremely well. Parts of Belfast aren't doing well. What's happening west of the van? Mm-hmm. What more could be done? Where is the infrastructure? And of course, this is me straying away out of my purview. But this is just someone who visits the North a lot. Mm-hmm and go there's a noticeable difference course, why is it that the train from Belfast to Derry takes
0: three and a half hours well, well why is there no train in Toronto from Anna
1: exactly now
0: our my
1: colleagues in Donegal would pose similar questions I, to me I, as I, well
0: I, I am going to um, uh, yeah. touch on that later yeah. on and I suppose we can include Gavin and Monaghan yeah and absolutely we'll so yeah certainly just moving on and I suppose we are forty five minutes in here, so time is yeah, yeah. against us. Unfortunately, if the UK does exit the EU, which probably at some time it will, as you said, what benefits or opportunities exist for Southern Ireland, if any? Yeah. You try and turn it into a positive.
1: Yeah, no, there there is opportunities, but all the negatives far outweigh these opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Um first up and like we've seen an elements of the this already in the last three and a half years, a lot of financial services companies, pharmaceutical <laughs> companies, digital companies, are now not relocating to Dublin and beyond, mm-hmm. and i specifically say Dublin, um, but they are moving an element of their business. Obvious example, obvious example, Barclays Bank, British institution, have about 110, 120 staff here. Pre-Rexit, that's up to 385. Mm-hmm. You know, HSBC, Bank of America, lots of organizations like that. That is a boost. That's good jobs, very well-played jobs. Difficulty then on a domestic issue is they all want them to be in Dublin, mm-hmm. and two-thirds of our financial services are in, jobs are in Dublin. I say this is a Dublin born and red, Dublin representative, but we do need far more of those out of Dublin. Yeah. And that is a difficulty for us, we have to make, and I'm not talking about just automatically Cork or Galway or even Belfast, I'm talking about Carrick and Shannon and Calven and Waterford making them more attractive mm-hmm. depending on the needs we see that in pharmaceuticals and we see it in digital companies. problem is the sector that's most impacted potentially by brexit, particularly if they go for a harder brexit for for GB, is the agri-food sector mm-hmm. and we saw that with currency fluctuation and the tourism sector as well but particularly the agri-food sector, ten percent of the value of our mushroom industry was wiped out the day after the referendum purely based on currency fluctuation. Mm-hmm. What would happen if there's a hard Brexit and all of a sudden a 20% tariff comes in as well? Mm-hmm. These are fine margin industries and you cannot train a 55-year-old mushroom farmer to become a hedge fund manager. Yeah, So the opportunities are there, financial services, tech. In the wider geo- geopolitical, we have opportunity to be Far more influential in the EU to be the gateway into the EU, particularly for North American com- North American companies, mm-hmm. English speaking, common law jurisdiction, very young workforce, highly educated. I think we're a very attractive place for people to move. Double-edged sword. We do have a lack of talent, so we need to bring talent in from abroad. Mm-hmm. In specific niche sectors, be it IT or bookkeeping or hospitality sector, then we got to accommodate them. I'm not going to pretend like we don't have a housing crisis. I'm Mm -hmm. well aware, even though I'm a government party. And we also have to make sure that our infrastructure is continued to build up to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. Do we need to change our education system? Never mind.
0: That leads me into Mm. what was going to be my next question. Um, Being a member of the EU has seen as being a positive thing, obviously, especially here in Southern Ireland. We can see, for example, the great road Mm -hmm. network um and the shiny new buildings mm. but what can the eu do in the next 20 years to really develop the whole island and i know you did touch on this before um not just brand dublin yeah. which again you have alluded to in fairness tell you there's no real network in donegal calvin monaghan to Fermanagh, for mana and i suppose that's why i include the whole island mm. in this but even from a southern um, government position mm. you know calvin monaghan donegal these people do feel as if that, you know, they are being left behind. And, I, and I'm not just levelling that statement willy-nilly. Like, you mm. know, I have spoke to these people. You have spoke to these people. Families of my own living in Donegal. Mm. Um, you know, th- they do feel like nearly third, third class citizens, never mind second class. Yeah, and um, th- this is actually, if you look at
1: the riddle that is Brexit, I speaking to a, a Labour MP who backed Brexit it was because the EU is great but it leaves far too many behind yeah and I think that is a fair criticism I think it's also very important to recognise the very good things the EU has done Mm -hmm. and far too many people focus on the 20% negatives rather than the 80% positives Absolutely. he put it the EU is great if you went to university (laughs) fair criticism if you don't go to university up until recently you couldn't do Erasmus you couldn't work for the EU Mm -hmm. so I look at I'm trying to avoid being party political or the government spokesman on this but Rail network is, of course, vitally important, but far more important than the rail network is a proper road and broadband network. And that is somewhere where we can use to what extent we're eligible. And we look at where we still can get EU funding. The vast majority goes to, it's not called it anymore, but it's the BMW region, the border, Midlands Western region. That's where the vast majority, because we're a net contributor to the EU now. Mm -hmm, And there's a very good reason we're a net contributor because economically, GDP is a lot more than it is, say, in Romania. Mm-hmm. And the EU did an awful lot to build up basic structures in Ireland, particularly in the 80s when I was growing up. And whether we look at is it the EU that's going to do it or really it should be central government.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: a twin-track approach. I, I look at roads and I look at roads that are needed to be done, and a lot of them are cross-border projects. Mm-hmm. And obviously the number of projects that are stalled now because there's no northern executive to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. Um, because who knows what's going to happen with the overall UK economy post-Brexit. It is already in recession. That's the concern. I think they can do a lot. And I think it's... There was a program called decentralization dreamt up by Charlie McCreevy to move civil service offices point blank. It didn't work. But the the idea is right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is someone saying... I suppose the same could be
0: leveled even at Belfast,
1: you know. It, It happens in every country. Yeah. It happens in every country. I go with the IDA, it's a company that wants to move to Ireland. They want to move to the capital. They want to move to the commercial centre. The great advantage is, even with the roads as they are, you can get to Letterkenny in three and a half, four hours. And you say that to a Canadian or American, and their mind's blown. It takes two hours on a cracking EU-funded motorway to get to Galway.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, Shannon Airport, Dublin Airport, transatlantic flights coming in. Mm -hmm. And I I said, I, I have a, I'm not just saying this because it's the right politically correct thing to say about promoting the regions and moving things beyond Dublin. Dublin's full.
0: Absolutely, it is.
1: Offices, hotel accommodation, houses. If we give people more opportunity to work good jobs, and those jobs can be done outside of a commercial centre now, not everyone has to work in the city. You can have a like guy. I, I know a guy who who tra- trades oil futures from, you know, his her bedroom in, in well, the Home Office, we'll give it the proper title, in Clonacilty. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. People shouldn't have to move to the commercial centre. People will always want to move. People will always want to move to the commercial centre. Before I was an active politician, I worked in politics and the general centre was to Brussels. Okay. People in London, if you if you want to work in politics, you would moved to London yeah. in, in England you can work for an mp in their constituency office but if you want to be dealing with legislation and the cut and thrust you move to london that'll always be there and you're never going to shift that overall reliance but we can water it down and that'll take huge investment which i like to think that's provided for in proper roads proper infrastructure and so much more beyond that but there's only, but i suppose how much of it can be done by the eu only partially they have regional funding they have regional policies and I'm not going to trot out the, the capitalist line that a rising, boat, rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. Certain boats need their holes plugged first. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, a drain of people. It can be a drain of talent. And what is, what is stopping that? And it is a challenge that faces every country in the world. It's easier to understand on this island because of our, our size. Mm-hmm. And we all know someone from another county. Yeah. You know, Of all sure. Thirsty counties, someone will always know someone.
0: Sure.
1: Not the same in America. Do you know someone from 50 states or in England. Yeah. Um, I think Irish society, North and South, is very unique like that. We always try and find who's the person we know in common, who is from the same village, the same town. I think it's a uniquely Irish thing. I think it's great. And mm-hmm. It's what makes us so strong as an emigrant people as well. The Irish diaspora have done so well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what's made our European networking quite well. look at our commissioner and, more importantly, our politicians from all parties, how they work with European colleagues um, is very reassuring. So. Those are the positives and those are the challenges and they're kind of mixed up in the same ball.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough. Okay, we'll change tech slightly okay. here. Uh, you are on record, Nigel, having described Sinn Féin as a hard-left Marxist party and you would resign the whip if Fine Gael ever went into government with them. Um, I suppose a simple question. What policies do you disagree with or why?
1: Yeah, and I suppose I say that, and
0: by the way, I stand
1: over it. That's still my position. Yeah. It's not changing. And I say that when well, I'm quite friendly with plenty of Sinn Féin senators, of TDs course. and MPs and councillors, and I'm a big believer in disagreeing without being disagreeable. Yeah. And quite a number of Sinn Féin people say, like, we fully agree with you. <laughs> okay. And that's that's not a bad way to be. Um, and that's the democracy we live with and this jurisdiction allows for us. I suppose the key policy is to get down to it. I'm not going to talk about legacy or anything like that because that's not my concern. Yep. It is a concern, but it's not yep. what I'm talking about. And the base sure. politics, if you look at Sinn Féin's approach to water charges, Sinn Féin's basic approach to income taxation, to corporate taxation, to the security and defence threats of the European Union and the need to spend more on those things, there are very basic, serious issues that are purely straight-up political differences. Mm-hmm. I am a politician of the centre-right. Mm-hmm. I am part of the European People's Party that is Western European Christian Democracy, not a term that you use in this jurisdiction and one that doesn't translate very well from German into English. But that's my prerogative. I have no problem with Fine Gael doing coalitions with liberal parties, with centrist parties,
0: with very moderate centre-left parties. But I'm not left-wing. I suppose that uh, then, just when I listened to you mm. saying that, um, I'm thinking something jumped into my head here. Mm. Fine Gael obviously, would be advocating for Sinn Féin and the DUP, just to mention the two biggest parties in the North, to restore Stormont. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's okay to insist that the DUP work with Sinn Féin in the North, but yet you have clearly stated that you would resign the party whip if Fine Gael was to go the coalition with them here? Do, is there a double standard here?
1: No, it's not a double standard. It's two totally different circumstances. We're not in a post-conflict situation governed by an international peace treaty. We have a situation in this jurisdiction where we've had a different type of democracy for the last
0: 100 years. years.
1: And I would argue it's a far more mature level of democracy, and I very much hope the North gets to that. But at this stage, when you have the Dahan system, when you have consensus-based politics, that's when you want the biggest parties of each tradition or all parties working together. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. We don't have that in this jurisdiction um, our jurisdiction wasn't formed in that basis in, in the early part of the century. So I think that's where the difference between nor- Northern and Southern politics is we get to make that difference. Um, I don't revel in it. I don't take a joy in it. If I was living in Northern Ireland I don't know which party I'd vote for. Mm-hmm. Being quite frank it's very hard to identify because I don't really identify with any of them. Yeah. But our politics is different and we've talked at length about how I came to land upon Fine Gael and how at the start I hadn't a formed ideology but I'm fairly sure of what my beliefs are at this stage okay. 16 years after joining the party yeah. and seeing the parties change as well um, and yeah if we come we have a general election and who knows two weeks or two years in this jurisdiction and the numbers say it should be a Fine Sinn Féin coalition I'm still very much opposed to that yeah and I know the vast majority of my Sinn Féin colleagues are too and so occasionally you have a beer and a bit of crack about it too.
0: As long as you can laugh about it. Yeah. Fine Gael are, I suppose, trying to build party support in the north. Um, how do you plan to win the support of, for example, young nationalists in Tyrone, Fremont, Armagh, Derry, wherever, that currently support and I suppose vote for the likes of Sinn Féin? Um, bearing in mind your, I suppose, opposition for one to go into government. With the same people or the same party that them people would be voting for?
1: We're not really looking to build support. We're not going to run elections in the north. We're not looking to set up branches. We have one branch in Queen's University. Yeah. But as I said earlier, we in Fine Gael, and I would argue a lot of southern parties, took our eye off the ball in the north. I and see. I think we need to have increased outreach to all communities in the north, but particularly the nationalist communities and particularly to... Even though they're never going to be voting for us, maybe in a. I very much hope that all Irish citizens are voting for the president and, at the next election. But apart from that, it's more to outreach and increase the levels of conversations with all in the North. And I've spoken to Fayla the last two summers for that reason.
0: I, I, as as a, somebody living in the North, I personally would welcome Fine Foyle, Fine Gael, Labour. I, I would welcome the inclusion of these parties. Trying to win my vote. Um, I, th- I, I think it's healthy. And, and you know, a party to represent Irish citizens mm. has to, in my belief, include all Irish citizens.
1: When it comes down to the, the taxation, about your, the practicalities of the jurisdiction, I'll be quite frank. Fine Gael go up north and runs in elections. We won't win any seats. We'll take votes away from a number of parties, probably the parties more in the, what I'd class the more moderate parties, be the SDLP, even the UUP and Alliance. And I don't know what we'd add to the political discourse in the North, particularly at this time when Stormont has collapsed and when Brexit is such a controversial issue and when it doesn't matter what the Taoiseach or the Tawnish or even myself says, it will irk certain sectors of community in the North. So,
0: so you wouldn't agree with what Fennifoil and the SDLP are well, potentially I, doing? I th- that.
1: I think there's plenty in the SCLP who don't agree with that either. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, it's interesting if I look at the history of the SCLP in the '80s. All three of the what were the main parties in the South—Finnafall, Finnegale, and the Labour Party—had distinct connections with the SCLP. Yeah, we ran Mark Durkan in the European elections.
0: Uh-huh. Um, you know, that was that was a shot out of the blue. That one. Yeah, there, there,
1: I believed in it. I nominated him at convention. I actually canvassed for him quite a bit. He's a good guy. It wasn't meant to be. Believe it or not, Brexit wasn't an issue here in the European elections as much as it was in the North. It didn't come up because we went into that stasis post extension period. Well, I just don't know, would it help the situation in the North for all the southern parties to decamp there? It costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of practicalities. It takes support. Would it be seen as a very provocative move?
0: Have you, not you, as an individual, sorry, I'll rephrase this, has Gael then got the right to criticise parties that may not want to take up their seats in Westminster? Then, if you don't put yourself in that position,
1: we absolutely have the right. It doesn't mean we're correct to do so, and doesn't mean they can. It doesn't mean they can't tell us that we're wrong. Uh, I'm quite. I'm quite blunt, uh, particularly at the moment. I think now is a crucial time to take up seats, but I don't believe in running. For election, not taking. I'm not an abstentionist, regardless.
0: But is it not the actual electorate that you're insulting them by criticising them? Because I suppose, like your own party and all parties, mm. they only do what their grassroots wants them to do.
1: You know representative democracy, you put out a platform and then they either vote for your platform or not. What's I don't believe in direct democracy. If someone tells me, sends me an email, I voted for you, you shouldn't vote against yeah. that, that's not going to sway my decision. I suppose at the party convention
0: and stuff the party like that, like and uh, I suppose I'm um, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Sinn Fein here, yeah. The SDLP currently have no MPs, mm-hmm. um, so I suppose from a nationalist perspective, Sinn Fein has got what is it, seven? I think. Seven shit Fein piece Yeah, so I, so I know a couple of them quite well, and they're elected, voted for them based upon the fact that they don't take up their seats.
1: Now there's a couple of th- there's a couple, I have a couple of ideas on that. Okay. Firstly, how important was the policy of abstentionism to their election? If you look at the literature produced by Sinn Fein in the last Westminster election, an awful lot of references to Brexit, and I've gone through the literature. I bet yeah. and very few references to abstentionism yeah. same with the speeches same with the press releases i think it's a given just i know it's a given but there's plenty of people and i, sp- I speak to northern friends who they are nationalists so they voted for sinn fein because they were the only nationalist party who could win the seat and okay. that identity politics does come into it and the same way there's plenty of unionists who voted for the dup even though because the euup didn't have a chance of winning and I do think that does come into that Absolutely. A level of identity, it does. Absolutely. and if we look at the the seat allocation using first past the post, mm-hmm. is very different to the seat allocation yeah. that's used uh, for West uh, for, for the
0: Assembly, assembly and using uh, yeah. P R S
1: T V or indeed local elections. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a fair criticism. Not, it's not even a criticism, and I know the S C L P have gone for years criticising the empty seat. Mm-hmm. But mine like at this key issue, maybe it's a policy that should be looked at, and I have a distinct opinion that if you run for an office, you should take those seats. And there is ways and means that the Oath of allegiance can be got around. You can sign your letter straight after. The SCLP MPs did it for years. It is a big issue for a lot of people. And I get that it's a red line. And to be honest, I've kind of stopped talking about it for the last 12 months. because <laughs> Until I brought it up. Well, no, myself and Sinn Féin colleagues joke about it. They go like, well, I'm going to give out to you about for doing that. And they say, well, we're going to give out to you for doing it in turn. Yeah, and yeah. that's, you go around in a circle after a while. Yeah,
0: no problem. Well, well, we'll leave that one alone. Okay. Promise I'm nearly finished. Mm. Young Fine Gael members pictured themselves welcoming the Israeli ambassador to Ireland on the 27th of September, Neil. What are your thoughts on the, I suppose, Israeli state on the illegal occupation of Palestine? And what is Fine Gael's policy on this matter?
1: Yeah, the Fine Gael policy is quite clear. We believe in the two-state solution. We Mm -hmm. believe in returning to the the previous borders. Mm -hmm. We believe in the development from that, and we're very keen to see both sides rein in the atrocities and there are atrocities on both sides and i think we have to recognize that even though if they may be weighted yeah on one particular side we do not boycott israel we believe israel does have its right to exist and we recognize their right to exist and we recognize our responsibility to engage with israel there's a considerable considerably large diaspora in israel that many people forgot about we had a jewish population in dublin of five thousand people a couple of decades ago it's
0: now less than 800. am i right in thinking not that that's relevant, it was just mm. when you mentioned. Um, no, sorry, yeah, uh, I was thinking
1: of something else. Sorry. No. It, look, to be honest, it's not an issue. The other thing is, it's an issue I have opinions on. Is mm. it what I get out of bed and think of first? No, no, and um, for but so for certain politicians in this state, it is, yeah, and you can understand, and why. I can understand why, yeah, but I do think it is when you look at around the world, and this isn't a criticism by the way, I've said this in the in the chamber, we do seem to be obsessed with the Middle East, with the Israel-Palestine
0: situation, mm-hmm. yet we very rarely hear about other parts of the world. I, I guess what, of course, you understand this, um, is that we, we feel a certain amount of, I suppose, connection because of what, I suppose, us as Irish citizens mm. went through, whether it be now or our forefathers you or look whatever. at the foundation
1: of Israel; it was IRA members who were fighting with the Israeli Liberation at the time. You go back to the fifties and forties. History is complicated. Mm-hmm, of course, there isn't direct comparisons. Mm-hmm. I don't look at Israel and Palestine and find that I agree hundred percent with either side. Yeah, I agree with one side more than the other, mm-hmm. which is usually the oppressed people, as it should be. But I don't have a feeling of connection or recognition I, i've been to israel i've been to the i've been to the occupied territory i've been to gaza i've been to the west bank it's an issue that i don't dedicate my life to i have an opinion it's not a formed opinion it's not a full opinion and mm. um, i
0: suppose you used the word at the start of this um mm. particular subject even though it is weighted on mm. one side i suppose that's what people see around the world flashing up on twitter youtube mm. news screens about these innocent Men, women and children getting slaughtered, I suppose mm-hmm. is the only word. Now fair enough, it happens on both sides. But it is but one weighted. side is
1: far better at defending itself because it has more money and yeah, it has more
0: support yeah. from the world power. Yeah. And I suppose I just the the Irish nation seems to have taken a stance to be maybe anti-Israeli pro-Palestinian. And I suppose that was the reason why I brought this question up. Young Fine Gael members pictured welcoming the Israeli ambassador to Ireland. It kind of seems to be going against, from my view, against the trend of Irish society. Yeah,
1: but I think a lot of people, the vast majority probably would be agnostic on the issue. They aren't focused on it. There is a certain set of our politics mm. have a very strong opinion on it. Mm-hmm. And they wave Palestinian flags when they get elected. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to see an Israeli flag waved by a Fine Gael person when they get elected either. Mm-hmm. But meeting an Israeli ambassador who has full diplomatic credentials to the state, mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a problem with that. I'm fairly sure the same group also met the head of the Palestinian mission. I've met both groups. Mm -hmm. I fully intend to. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people who describe themselves as vociferously pro-Palestine have met the Israeli ambassador, have engaged with Israeli politicians. They don't really come very often. I think it would be a very sad thing if Israel was to close our embassy here. I think it's best to keep talking. And if we have taken that decision that we are, politically anyway, quite obsessed with the situation and it's not just politicians we look at our aid agencies that are active and we look at the corporate element I think if we are going to invest, you have to invest in as balanced an approach as can be allowed. I'm not saying you go 50-50 if someone does something horrific they deserve to be castigated from a height I'm not abdicating that criticism but I do think people shouldn't be criticised just for meeting ambassador the same way I didn't think it was right to boycott when the Israeli football team came to play. I don't agree with with colleagues, and we've had it out and it's nev- never been a bit one, I don't agree with classification Israel as is an apartheid state. I spent a lot of time studying apartheid South Africa, appalled by it. I don't think there's a direct comparison. I think it actually undermines the campaign for equality for Palestinian people by jumping to those classifications. I think there's a far more nuanced debate to have far more thoughtful debate to have. I'm not saying that these people don't have genuinely thought-based opinions based on visits and so much more beyond. But I think automatically jumping because a delegation of four or five young Fine Gael members meets the Israel ambassador, thinking that automatically is somehow a bad thing or should be something that should be criticised, I don't think that's helpful in terms of we are going to play a proactive role in getting a solution to uh, a civilisation's old problem, to be honest, in this region. Um, since the birth of time, it's been controversial. And I suppose it's the difficulty when you have a very nuanced opinion or maybe just not a fully formed opinion on something. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should be automatically lumped in with one side or criticized. And I think a lot of people are running away from this topic or just assume one opinion because they're worried to have a really genuine debate about it. And when we have really genuine debates and we remove the emotion from it, which is extremely difficult to do in this situation, but it's extremely difficult to do with lots of situations, I think we did it quite well on a number of social issues. And I think we've done it well in other international issues. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be refreshing to go down that, to know that we could have the Israeli ambassador come and debate the head of the Palestinian mission. that they probably would do it, or a couple of academics from Israel, moderate academics. I'm not talking about people who are pro-illegal settlements or expansions, have them over, invite an Israeli minister, could be from one of the more moderate parties in the coalition, without knowing, well, that's all it's going to be is boycotts and protests, and they're never going to get speaks, people are going to disrupt. That's my opinion. Some people will probably jump on board and castigate me from
0: a height for having it. No, Bob. Neil, you're on record as saying the Easter Lily has become offensive. Mm. But you choose to wear the Remembrance Poppy, which commemorates soldiers who died fighting for the United Kingdom and the British Empire. Can you see why this could equally be seen as offensive to Irish nationals? Absolutely, and
1: I was one of the first people to speak up and support of James McLean for his decision not to wear it. I fundamentally believe in his right not to wear it. And One thing I found quite difficult in the last five or ten years, as I mentioned earlier, you wouldn't have worn a poppy in Dublin in the 90s. Yes. But now, now I don't where I give it a gift of a paper poppy here sitting in front of us, I wouldn't wear that anymore. I wear the poppy on the, the shamrock metallic pin, which was spec- specifically commemorates the Great War and the Second World War.
0: Yeah,
1: Great War I consider meant to family members who would have fought, right. as a lot of Irish well, families of course, did,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, all from Bell And I really think it's been quite difficult to have that mature discussion in this jurisdiction, where in England... You can't go on the BBC without putting on a poppy. You can't play premiership football without putting on a poppy. I fear it's become a glorified thing. And it's quite a contrast. What repulses me in some ways about how the poppy is being treated in England is probably the same as many people are by. I don't necessarily associate it with British Army activities in the north or across the world going over but I do think it becomes a bit of a glorification and a celebration and one thing we've had a very difficult (coughs) period of the decade of uh, centenaries and commemorations in this in on this island in this jurisdiction and I think we've reached a decent level of maturity When I think the Easter Lily I don't unfortunately necessarily think of 1916 I think of people selling it on the streets of Dublin in the 80s to collect for the cause the cause so being, That's what you associate. That's what I, uh, I associate. Or conjures
0: up images
1: of? My memory is walking down O'Connell Street, people selling the Easter lily in the 80s, mm. and that was going up to support the families, prisoners' wives for the cause. Can that's me, where that's, I find uh, it so offensive. Just,
0: just how, when, if I was to say to you, the Irish trickler, then what image would that conjure up? This is
1: where it gets interesting. Sorry? This, this is where it gets interesting. Yeah. That is my flag. Yeah some people may have tried to take it and it's associated in Northern Ireland but I have no problem that is my flag. Yeah. I believe that is for an Ireland of all. Of course. And we haven't and, got and there col- yet. The colors and the design are very important to me. The
0: true meaning of what Ireland should be the green, white and and orange. And when people
1: say green, white and gold, I automatically correct Absolutely, them. Absolutely. And lots correct, of people do say that. I
0: know, but that, yeah, that, that that's a bugbear of mine. Yeah, it?
1: I think awfully when people say that because that's the awfully colors. <laughs> so this is the difficulty. Mm-hmm. I just felt that the tricolour stayed proud and stayed true to what its original meaning was. Yeah. I think there's a complexity when looking at the Easter Rising that the state never looked at with a more nuanced opinion. It was the heroes in 1916. The proclamation ultimately led to the overthrow of imperial rule and it was fully popular. No problem with that narrative but we also have to look at that originally the 1916 rebellion didn't have popular support It mm-hmm. was probably the activities of the British state or the British, whatever you want to call it, forces in the immediate weeks after that changed the public tide of opinion. And I say this kind of from the historian, when you look at people being executed mm-hmm. and you look at the activities of the black and tans and the mm-hmm. auxiliaries, and I know there's modern day comparisons or recent history comparisons. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to, if we're going to discuss history, discuss it all. And if people are going to choose to wear the Easter lily, wear it. I'm not going to wear it because I associate it with provisional IRA
0: activities of the 80s. But I suppose i would go back to the original, I think what says a quote, mm. that you find that Lily has become offensive. Mm. Is offensive too strong a word? Bear in the mind, and I'm just using yeah. that, deliberately balance it against the poppy. it's the same,
1: that. so I sit across from Sinn Féin Centre, I don't wear it, poppy in the chamber because I don't like wearing political symbols. And I recognise it's a political symbol within the chamber. Yeah. The only one I'll wear is the red AIDS ribbon. But yeah. I'll walk down the corridor, Jin Feng Colleague will have an Easter lily on, I will have a poppy on. I would imagine we will be equally offended by each other <laughs> and possibly sit opposite each other and have a cup of tea. Yeah. When you,
0: well, I suppose when, when you put it like that, it's, 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 it's a difficult one.
1: To... It's an extremely difficult yeah. one. And people have to suspect that I have issues with the Easter lily. I will never wear one. I do not begrudge anyone's desire to wear one. Mm -hmm. I question where the funds collected go to, just like I very much question where the funds collected by sales of poppy go to. And in this jurisdiction, they go to protecting memorials. And I think that's a fair, once again, nuanced opinion that maybe some people who would just see it as an alien opinion.
0: Yeah. OK. I suppose it's like um, the flag issue, um, the national anthem, Mm -hmm. etc., all very divisive. Mm -hmm. And many as a family can even be split yeah. on, on these things. Okay, very quickly, um, Neil, if you don't mind. In a recent poll by Lord Ashcroft, mm. it found that 51% were in favour of a united Ireland. Um, when will the Irish government set up an all Ireland forum to discuss this? Doing so will ensure the mistakes of Brexit won't happen. And I suppose planning ahead mm. is vital in any subject, just not the potential border poll. Would you agree? No, I think it is right to plan. Yeah, but not now.
1: Course. And I think the reason why not now, and and be quite frank, it's because of Brexit. Okay. Brexit at the same time has increased the potential of United Ireland and increased discussion about it. But you, you but do, also until it's you do resolved. realize
0: Brexit is a very recent phenomenon, and the the border poll whole scenario has been around for the past hundred years. So yeah. Um, Different people have. It's exactly
1: a centenary a week ago. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So, so you know why? I suppose what what nationalists and republicans would say is that in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, 1990, they have been looking for a border mm. poll. So why just because Brexit has reared its ugly head is their call for a border poll now still not as justified as it was? Five years
1: ago, I suppose. Well, five years ago, I suppose the the logic and people have criticised me for impo- implying this logic is when the Good Friday Agreement was signed in nineteen ninety eight. We were said it needs a, de- a generation to bed in. So you're looking at generation is thirty three years. We're now okay. twenty one years from the Good Friday Agreement.
0: Okay.
1: So has the Good Friday Agreement bedded
0: in? Uh, has Has Brexit accelerated that call? It is
1: now. Exce- it has changed the dynamic. Mm-hmm. Brexit has changed the dynamic quite clearly. I told you before, Brexit, there was no issue about the, the threat of a hardening of the border. Yeah. And equally for unionist communities, and we forget this, the threat of a hardening border down the IRC. Mm-hmm. We have to it's understand really their concerns. Mm-hmm. And I, said, I was in the north a lot during the summer. And I was in Belfast on the 12th of July, um, officially. And I looked around, and it wasn't necessarily the people with sashes marching, but those who come out to watch the parade. And they're like, how are we going to deal with this issue to these people Yeah, the hardcore
0: and I suppose that's why the establishment of an an all iron form call it what you want that's why it's so vital because you said it yourself how are we going to deal with everybody's fears and concerns not just the nationalist or unions community there's civic society here there's people that have no vested interest one way or another so I don't see what the harm would be in setting up and a, um, a forum, as I say, nobody, well, sorry, maybe people is, but I, for my money, don't want to see a border poll next year or in five mm. years. Well,
1: Michelle O'Neill wants one in three uh, years.
0: That's okay. Michelle's entitled, but she I know, but do not own the border They don't
1: know, at all. but the perception is that they do at the uh, moment. I know, but... And the people but, who are talking about it... But
0: in reality, they don't. That's why shared Ireland and other groups like our And why are so important. That, that, that we want to see an adult conversation mm. taking place and that had a, adult conversation has to include warts and all mm. and, and I stress that it can't all be one side there can be no preconceived outcomes before negotiations mm. and,
1: and the Taoiseach was quite clear he said it a failure during the summer he did that if there was to be United Ireland it
0: wouldn't look like the South does exactly. it would be very different yeah. but, but that's I suppose and I keep going back to this point is that that's why it's vital that there has to be an institution set up to have this conversation. We
1: had an all-Ireland. Look, look, we go back through history and see. Look at the attempts. You took at the, look at the New Ireland Forum of the 80s, mm-hmm. boycotted by unionists. Yeah, we look at the all-Ireland civic dialogue. My lanyard from it is behind you, boycotted by the majority of unionists. Mm-hmm. Even calling it an all-Ireland civic dialogue,
0: it can't be called that. I and agree. Even
1: moving to that mm-hmm. and saying this is what we're talking about, how do you do that without and let's be fair and it's something I probably didn't consider up until properly until the last six months. A significant part of the union's population feel under threat. Yes. Feel besieged. And these aren't necessarily the hardcore like I just described. No, I appreciate The them. moderate thinking ones okay. who come down, and come down to the south all the time, come watch Irish rugby matches, consider themselves equally Irish and
0: British. Can, can I just give you a little bit of the feedback that mm. I've been getting? Now, by no means is this a broad mm. sweeping statement here. This is just a little bit of feedback from some... If I ask, say, a moderate unionist, mm. what are your fears of entering into a new Ireland? Mm. Right? A lot of the feedback is the erosion or loss of their British identity. Mm. Now, again, equally, maybe that's not something I or nationalists would have thought about ten years ago. Yeah, but that's an important thing for for me and other people to hear that, mm-hmm. because without sitting down and talking to somebody in a civil manner. How would you understand what their fears were? Oh, absolutely. So, so, you know, the, the, the erosion of someone's identity is vitally important mm-hmm. for them, the same way as it would be for me. Mm-hmm. So nobody can ride a rough shot over that mm. and, and, and wedge, shoehorn 800,000 or a million people mm-hmm. into a society where they clearly don't want to be. As Mike Nesbitt said, if there was no alarm tomorrow morning and the police pulled up to my door to give me a summons, would it be a ps Would it be a yeah. What colour would the, would the postbox be? Would, would they it be re- red or would they, it be green?
1: Would they recognise the institutions of the new state? Yeah. So, there was, for plenty of years, there was a certain element who didn't recognise the institutions of this state. Yeah. And I suppose why... It's an issue I've thought about at length, discussed at length, and come at it with a very raw opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, the issue of the future of this island... Hasn't always been my motivating factor, and I no. would argue it's for the vast majority of people south, far from it. You know, in across Fingal, Fianna Fianna Yeah. emotionally, of course, I want United Ireland. Of course, I do. I like the idea of it. Practically, when we start having that discussions and how we start having that discussions, I believe, I do believe in this in the soft creep. I believe at the end of the day, can
0: you get any softer than than sitting around the table and discussing?
1: well yes That's and if you look at what we outcomes. do and we look at say the Taoiseach visiting the Orange Hall or the or the head of the Orange Hall last year you know me going to the the, the Orange Order Parade this year on the 12th there's always been since Leo Vlachar become Taoiseach an like, Irish government minister or representative
0: has gone to that I think um, the equally, Leo Simon and the whole thing has made great strides but uh, equally that isn't unionism
1: alone no of course Orangeism very much isn't It's how do we come to a situation where unionists feel comfortable going to GA matches, but equally, could we have a situation where we have real All-Ireland soccer approaches? You talk about the Stanta Cup, you talk about things like that, because that's where you're looking at the the real base level of identity when it's it's about a scarf and a flag and what song you chant. Mm -hmm. I just think in this absolute malaise of Brexit, yes, it's propelled discussion about the future, and Brexit forced that. And it's a very difficult discussion because I think what's been shown, particularly in the last week, is Ulster unionism is very, very different than British unionism.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well, recently, in fact, a few days ago, the PSNI chief constable has warned recently the potential of loyalist mm. disorder if they don't, and I quote, get the type of Brexit they want. Yeah. And what Brexit do they want? <laughs> do you they know,
1: know, like, do they want to hire a hard border on this island? They say no does does the brexit deal that's on the table automatically create a, a material hard border in northern ireland between northern ireland and gb i don't i argue it does not mm-hmm. i don't think it would impact on people's lives and um, to the extent that a hard border on the island would though there's a crucial difference there and i'd argue that what's being advocated as the the third choice after you go through the the avenues of the Irish Protocol isn't a hardening of the border in the Irish Sea to an extent that would be politically difficult. But I just genuinely fear the more and more we talk about United Ireland, I can go up, I've addressed the Ulster Union's AGM in Enniskillen a couple of years ago, and it didn't matter what I said or the accent I said it in. I have a fairly tame accent. Um, or the sheer fact that, of course I sing around Naveen, of course I support the Republic of Ireland soccer team, of course I support the Dubs, is alien because it's identity. I do not see the problem with having bilingual street lines. I think it's quite nice, but that for some people is a step too far. Yeah, there's politicians in the north talking about how they'd but they'd reef out those street a, signs.
0: A, a step too far for some um, is only equality for the other. Exactly. Now, there's a saying, on that, and of course now that we're recording this, I won't be able mm. to quote it. But like, when all you've known is supremacy, then equality must feel like discrimination. Mm. You know that for a lot of society is exactly the issue here yeah you know just because you've had something for you know how many hundred years Mm. doesn't mean to say it was right look we will see elections potentially to
1: Westminster in the next few weeks we'll see elections to the assembly in due course are those going to be the elections where nationalists beat unionists for the first time we don't know
0: it's it's difficult to know you know
1: we rely a lot on opinion polls Mm -hmm. and (laughs) opinion polls aren't always right no and The reason we have elections and referenda because you can't govern by opinion poll. Exactly. So if it comes to a situation that nationalism is consistently, when I say consistently, I'm talking about one or two, three elections, beating unionism in electoral points, then that discussion slowly will begin, of course. But as many leaders have said, it can't simply just be 50% plus one. And that goes both ways.
0: Yeah, but you're not suggesting that for a vote, if there was a vote. Well the vote for a border poll yeah, to be called one would be suffice to win it Of course it.
1: but suffice to win on a vote mm-hmm. but is it real look at 52% in the UK has mm-hmm. that provided clarity no but I think what is more important for the for the here and now is people like me and the Taoiseach and the Tornish and Michal Martin and then Brendan Howland spending a lot more time in the North going on and doing talk back and Going and addressing Fela and going to unionist groups. I agree with you, by the way. And I think until we start doing that, so it comes away that this is just normal. Yeah. And it's not Simon Coveney addressing the Belfast Chamber of Commerce lunch yesterday. It was normal. But a lot of people say like, oh, every time the Taoiseach or Tawnish to come up here, they feel under threat. But the more and more they come in, the less the threat dissipates. Yeah. So an intensive preparation of the Irish state, never mind talking about having a big conversation, it's like getting to know each other exactly, and Brexit has provided that yeah. and we had the Ulster Farmers Union testifying before my committee yesterday and I've no doubt the two men present were clearly from a unionist background based on names and geography and everything else but their relationship with the Irish Farmers Association couldn't be warmer yeah. and it's the same in a lot of organisations and bodies probably not throughout all sectors socioeconomically through society yeah and i think that's one of the big challenges
0: neil i have genuinely another 10 questions but, <laughs> I, n- but I know you haven't got the time but i yes. wanted to touch on your big obviously irish rugby fan yeah and, and you played yourself for as old wesley yeah i yeah. yeah, still do um no no injuries or nothing like this, i guess actually no?
1: detached my retina four oh. weeks ago playing so i had to have surgery about Honestly. that but i'm on okay. the mend
0: I suppose if we had time to discuss it, the Irish rugby probably is a shining example of how the island uh, can Mm. work together. We won't mention obviously the All Blacks last week. Um, Tell me this very quickly, who inspires you? Well,
1: Obviously not in a rugby sense, but I get inspired by, to be honest this is going to sound really corny, but my son. Excellent answer. That's who inspires me. I like that one. He's only two, he's nearly two, but I quite like him. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that's who is the embodiment of everyone who I as a public representative work for every day.
0: Excellent answer, by the way. Paint me a picture of your Ireland in 30 years then. It doesn't have to be a long answer. Just
1: An island where people geographically move goods, services and themselves freely and happily with no restrictions comfortable in its place in the world and comfortable with those around it. Good enough.
0: What is the best piece of advice you have ever been given and what advice would you give to the political parties trying to restore Stormont? Big question but it doesn't have to be a big answer. Yeah,
1: the best piece of advice is sometimes take the opportunity when it presents itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that rolls over for the parties
0: as well. Very good, I like that. I promise you this is the final <laughs> If you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why?
1: I'm very tempted to say three northern politicians for the crack. Um but i you're, won't. you're looking alright, just Yeah. That'd be entertaining. <laughs> um Lord, I don't know. Uh three people I'd like to speak to from history. Okay. Um uh, I'm trying to think of Three people who aren't necessarily just every cliche that everyone comes up with. It's not something necessarily I've thought about. Yeah, she's like Gandhi and Muhammad Ali yeah, and um, Nelson and Nelson and like yeah. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose I'd like to invite Bill Clinton. Yeah, very interested in Bill Clinton. Um, I have to make sure everyone can speak the same language. Gender balance. Yeah, so no yeah I know that's us. the next one, isn't it? <laughs> that's where my mind went to. Um,
0: don't worry I'd want to be a bit of crack
1: as well I suppose yeah Bill Clinton is someone I have a big interest in across the world possibly Ken Clark, the British former Chancellor of Exchequer I've read his book I enjoyed his book and then that's a first um, that's a first yeah it's possible you have to be a bit of of a nerd like me to ever mention (laughs) someone like that Uh, yeah Bill Clinton Ken Clark, and for sheer divilment, Margaret Thatcher
0: for sheer development. Yeah. On that note Neil Richmond it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. You've been very open honest and frank and um, I know our listeners will thoroughly enjoy it so thank you very much My pleasure